0: Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's episode of Daily Horror Habit continues the show's latest series review of the Saw franchise, in which every week I'm joined by returning friend of the show, Bernie, to dissect another twisted entry in Jigsaw's ever elaborate nightmare. This week we're talking about the second installment, 2005 Saw 2, which saw Lee Whannell return to help rewrite director Darren Lynn Boseman's script for his film The Desperate, which he would go on to adapt into Saw 2. while James Wan stepped away from the director's chair, instead regulating himself to producing the film and giving input on Whannell's rewrite to better bring Darren Lynn Bosman's script into the Saw universe. Saw 2 begins with Detective Eric Matthews, played by Donnie Wahlberg, surrounding Jigsaw, who's once again played by Tobin Bell, in his workshop, seemingly having him dead to rights. But as is usually the case, Jigsaw is one step ahead of his victims and reveals that while the police may have him surrounded, they should have been more concerned with the group of victims he has confined to a secret house filled with his deadly traps. As Detective Matthews has to race against the clock, as the victims have two hours to live before a toxic nerve agent in the house kills them, he learns that his son is amongst Jigsaw's victims. It's a literal race against the clock in this bigger and bloodier sequel, so without further ado, Here's Bernie in my chat on Saw Two. Bernie, welcome back to the show, man. I appreciate
1: it, man. At some point, I'm gonna have to uh, use like, do you want to play a game or kind of (laughs) that in some way in one of these openings, but I wasn't creative enough to do it today. I'm I'm excited to chat about this movie though, man. This was a. This was definitely uh, one of the more interesting uh, entries in the Saw franchise.
0: Yeah, this is so. This is the second of three Saw movies that I've seen. Um, and again, I haven't really revisited this series in a very long time. Um, and so I was kind of surprised in revisiting Saw last week with you. I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as I remember it being, in terms of just like it being as sort of just notorious as it kind of has this sort of hype behind it in terms of like it being very gruesome and very sort of just disturbing. I, of course, still loved Tobin Bell, of course, and sort of just the grainy grunginess of the world. But I wasn't nearly as kind of captivated by a lot of sort of the traps and whatnot, just because, I don't know, I think like over the years, I've definitely seen more and more gruesome horror movies. and so. In revisiting Saw 2, I was surprised to find that I actually enjoy this one more, I think, than the original. But uh, before we really kind of just delve into Saw 2, I'm curious, what do you look for in a sequel, specifically a horror sequel? Like, what do you consider to be the most telling traits that a sequel is successful? I think
1: there has to be some sort of a lineage to, or some sort of callback to the previous movie, right? The the one that you're following up on. Um, I personally like a good storyline so I mean there's a lot of horror movies that just they rely on like the gore they rely on jump scares um this movie definitely has that in spades but there's at least a, a coherent and I mean as we obviously get into we may or may not disagree on this but I I really did like the mystery behind this I think moves along the narrative better than if it was just a bloody gory reenactment or uh, some sort of second installment of, of like a, a smaller kind of Saw 1, if that makes sense. I think the fact that mm-hmm. there was a bigger cast in this, there's more gore related to it, and again, I mean, as we get into it, I really enjoy the, the story with Detective Matthews. Um, and again, we kind of mentioned this uh, in the previous review, not everything is as it seems. I don't believe that most people, when they watch this movie, will come away with the actual, and at least my my interpretation of the meaning behind this movie. So I, I definitely appreciate the, the second uh, aspect of that for this.
0: My fear always with sequels is that, and it's kind of a problem that plagued older horror films from like back in the day, like 70s, 80s, 90s, I'm thinking in terms of, um, they had a tendency to really kind of retread on territory covered in the previous film and spending a lot of time sort of catching the audience mm-hmm. up. I think back to like those old Friday the 13th movies where for like at least the first four or five of them those movies literally begin catching you up on events that happened in the previous films when it should take like 15 seconds to catch somebody up on those narratives. But in terms of mentioning like this being a bigger and bloodier sequel I definitely agree with that and it's refreshing to find a sequel that doesn't really just feel like Saw 1.5, right? This feels like a full-fledged sequel in the best ways possible, I think, in that, again, it is just familiar enough that it really builds off the identity and the structure of Saw in a way that, again, you have the detective angle, you of course have the traps and whatnot, but everything is just more um, expanded upon. And whether that be the world, that whether that be the kills, the cast, like you said, there's a much bigger cast this time, and it's not sort of confined to this one room for a portion of the film. And I think that, it's smart to have that similar setup right again it begins with somebody face down on the ground you find the cassette tape oh there's traps somebody i mean the film literally opens with essentially a re a redoing of the bear trap scene except it's reversed instead of a reverse bear trap this time it's sort of like this iron maiden uh venus fly trap mask and of course it's a bigger and bloodier introduction to saw than the other film had and I think that that's a really good primer for the movie and it really shows that this new director is being given the reins and of course it helps that lee winnell is returning to help sort of uh rewrite his script in a lot of ways to make it feel more authentic to saw um i think that that obviously helps but the film just feels like it's being directed by somebody that has a good sense of what the first film set out to do and again something that we had talked about in our first review of the original Saw was that everything feels like it has a purpose, right? Nothing is sort of like just nasty for the sake of being nasty, um, even though of course this film definitely has its nasty moments, but everything still feels very intentional. It's servicing one of the two narratives that is running uh, concurrently to one another, at least that's what we think is happening for a majority of the film. But uh, I'm kind of curious how you feel that this new director kind of handles taking over the reins to the Saw series.
1: I mean, so, right, it's definitely a very different structure because in one movie you have an enclosed space and then there's a separate hostage situation going on. Well, I guess maybe not all that different um, if you look at that kind of a parallel, but uh, just in terms of, how, again, how many people you have and the space that you have to move around, two people are essentially handcuffed or... uh, or immobile. Right. And then in this, you're technically, you know, you're slowly dying as there's a poison coming through the air or the airways rather, but you have a little bit more of a say on kind of how this goes, right? Like in the original movie, uh, Lee, when character, he essentially dies within the first 25 seconds of the movie. Right. (laughs) Whereas in this case, if, You know, I I rewatched this again uh, last night and there are little hints and pieces that Jigsaw and as we're going to get into his uh, protege uh, kind of leave for the folks that got captured there. If they listen to if they if they basically listen to the rules, they are actually going to survive. Whereas, as we learn at the end that isn't necessarily the case that that what happens right that's what makes Sog so good um but they definitely left a, a bigger i think uh a bigger easter egg in this than they did in the previous movie and so on rewatching it i'm sure when we talk about it towards the end uh, you know people who might want to rewatch this just to see how crazy of a uh, of a turn it could have been or how short of a a movie it could have been rather. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it, it just, it opened up a different side of saw, um, that was perfect for this new director to come in and explore this new aspect of Jigsaw essentially.
0: Yeah. I think what I really appreciate about having the bigger cast is that it's not, they don't really just feel like fodder, right? Even though like you can say, yes, they are just fodder, but, I feel like the movie at least gives them a little more purpose than just being fodder right i think that it they serve as a way to show like jigsaw really is about manipulating people and turning people against one another and to what you had said yeah they had just listened to what he said and this film i think reinforces that more than the first one right because the first one has that sort of uh that dark humor element where it's like yeah Winnell's character basically dies in the first 30 seconds of the movie because he flushes that key down the drain Um, and i think that in this it shows that again like jigsaw is this twisted fucked up person but if you listen to what he's saying there is actually a way to like survive and of course he gets this sick twisted pleasure in at the end of the day turning people against against one another Um, and i think that that's one of those elements that allows his character to get fleshed out a lot more because if we're being honest, like Donnie Walbury's character um, is not, not the most uh, original take on a cop, right? He's divorced, he's got a rough relationship with his son, he likes to scream and shout, and we kind of learn that his character, just because he's a cop, it doesn't mean that he is this sort of like force of good, right, and Jigsaw knows that. Um, and Jigsaw really kind of like reveals that and exposes his faults, and like in mentioning that he plants evidence, he beats up suspects, all these different things that really show that we have this very flawed protagonist. If we had had a protagonist that was more sort of just like a standout performance, I feel like it would almost distract from that because again, at the end of the day, Donnie Wahlberg is just another jigsaw victim. Um, And I think that this film does a really good job sort of of fleshing out its primary antagonist more than the first film. And I think that obviously it's intentional, but also that's really important for a sequel, right? Because I think the first film, what you learn about Jigsaw is just barely enough that you're following along in the narrative and you're getting a feel for everything. And the first film never feels bogged down by like exposition and not to say that the sequel does, but the sequel is allowed to flesh out his character more. And there's more of a drive to want to understand more about Jigsaw, I think. Like that is what you should, try to, you should strive to do in the sequels, right? Because the audience has bought into the idea of a sequel already. You don't necessarily know that audiences will buy into the first film in a franchise or at that point it's not even a franchise you just want to see if people are interested in this concept that you want to potentially grow into a series or a franchise and so to see a sequel that doesn't get bogged down in anything right it doesn't sort of lean too much into the gore the gory traps doesn't lean too much into the uh pro- the protagonists but it also doesn't lean too much into the antagonist either it feels like they really do touch upon these different narrative avenues and also the practical gore stuff that we're there for as well. It touches upon all these things really well in terms of not overshadowing one element over the other. Um, and that's very rare, I think for a sequel right out the gate that came out a year after the first film. right. I mean, it's very even
1: keeled. And to your point about, uh, Donnie Wahlberg's, uh, detective work there, uh, both him and Danny Glover's detective characters, are relative cliches, right? And what I enjoy about Saw in this particular aspect is that as Saw 2 is going on, and even in parts of Saw 1, there are obvious moments where when you learn about who, like what actually Jigsaw is or who he is, you, fe- you might feel a little bit empathetic towards him because he is an old man that um, has cancer and he's dying of it, right? Um, in the second movie uh Donnie Wal- or Saw 2 rather Donnie Wahlberg's character beats the living shit out of Tobin Bell and obviously like from a there there's there's two sides to it because again you see from the perspective of you're dealing with a dirty cop however he is trying to save his kid obviously but you're also dealing with a guy who obviously is out of his mind but he's an old guy with cancer so like it's just a very weird contrast that keeps being brought up um the thing that i the thing that freaked me out again in this movie was that like i wasn't actually sure what the movie was about at the end in the sense of like is the test for his son for the eight people that were in that that building or structure, right, uh, that were playing the game? Or was it actually for Donnie Wahlberg's character? And, I, like, halfway through, I started thinking about that, and towards the end, I really, I, I kind of came up with my with my answer on how I think it went. But um, I'd be curious, did you ever have that notion pop up of, like, am I actually, is the game about Donnie Wahlberg or the eight people? Or was it just more of, like, trying to figure out why Obi was so weird through the first 35 minutes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I really like that. Again, the film introduces a much larger cast and yet we're it, the film is able to make us question that, right? This idea that it's like, who is the true player of this right. game? Is this all about Mark Wahlberg or Donnie Wahlberg? Is this about Tobin Bell at the end of the day? Is this about the actual victims themselves? And I love that that lens, when it shifts between characters, there's still a narrative that is at least compelling enough that you're curious about that, right? And of course, eventually, as more and more victims are getting killed and killed, um, it's still very kind of refreshing that you're able still questioning everything. And I think that is an element that, at least from my understanding, gets kind of lost the further in the series that they go with a lot of these sequels in that you're not really sure about anything. And I think that, that is something that is lost on some people when they talk about these films and that, Oh, they're kind of just like mindless. There's just like gory for the sake of it. But really there's kind of like this paranoia element to all of the narratives so far that we've seen in saw one, saw two, that is making you question everything. Like, can I really take what I'm seeing at face value? Is this necessarily about this one character or are they just another victim and not the primary victim? Um, And that's an element to the narrative that I really like. But I want to go back for a second to what you were saying about um, Jigsaw's character and something that I think this film really solidifies in him being this very iconic, obviously, horror uh, antagonist and villain is that even when he is this like, again, we don't see him much in the first film. In this film, he is a very sort of just like a shriveled up old man who's clearly in the last stages of cancer and he's very sick and all of this. And yet he is in control throughout the entire film, even when Donnie Wahlberg is beating the fuck out of him and shoving the barrel of his gun down his mouth. Like, he is never not in control. And I love that his character is really one of, a character that relies on his intellect. He never, again, never has to raise his voice. He never really has to uh, use power over people or anything like that. And it's something that I think gets overlooked a lot in that he very much is this sort of, the, uh, the intellectual serial killer in a lot of ways. Like, obviously, you've had people like Hannibal Lecter who it's like, oh, they're brilliant. But at the end of the day, they're still like slitting throats and chewing off people's faces. But Tobin Bell's character, he never has to do that. He doesn't have to get out of his chair to really do what he is doing. And I think that that's an element to his character that makes him a very, just an entertaining horror icon in a way that not a lot of horror icons are, right? Usually it's, They're running, they're known for their brute strength, their invulnerability, and yet this sick old man is essentially about to bring a city to its knees and the police have to divert all their forces to whatever crime scenes that he is involved in and he doesn't have to get out of his chair. And I really love the contrast in this where, yeah, he's sitting down for most of the time, but he's never not in control of what is happening and he's always four or five moves ahead of all of his adversaries. And that's an element to his character that I think it gets overlooked, again, because of like the traps and how bloody and gory they are. And yet his intellect is just as frightening, right? I mean, there's that scene where Donnie Wahlberg is like, oh, I'll rip off your fucking head when he finds out that he's kidnapped his son. And he's like, I have cancer. Like, what can you do to me that is as painful as that? And like, that's such a fantastic moment because it's just like, dude, you can't do anything to me. This is my game and you're going to play it. Otherwise there will be blood, right? He has that fantastic line. Oh yes, there will be blood, which is again, it's only six words. And yet he's able to make that so sinister just from that kind of like raspy voice of his that I love so much. He lapsed
1: right before that. I mean, yeah, it's just that he's kind of like, if I was to like blend like two crazy people, one fictional in one case, one real, I'd pro- it's probably like a mix of like Manson and Hannibal Lecter. He can like convince people, as again, we'll get to, he has uh, accomplices both in the first movie with Zep and in the second movie with, as we find out, uh, again, maybe not everything is as it seems, maybe one of the people on the inside is working with him. Um, mm-hmm. Inside the, with the victims, I mean. But um, yeah, I mean, so we get into the deaths right um eventually people start getting knocked off one by one ob dies in a very un- i don't know if unfortunate is the right way of saying. It. at the end of the day all those people are scumbags to one sense or another but um being burned the way that he does is no bueno obviously what was were any of the deaths actually impactful for you or was it just more of like a kill count at that
0: point Yeah, you know, I think it's two things. I didn't necessarily care about any of the characters, but I think that the sequel reinforces that Jigsaw uses his intellect to influence others to do what he wants to. And of course, there's that moment where he tells uh, Detective Matthews, like, oh, I've never killed anyone, which is bullshit. Because it's like, yeah, dude, you're still breaking the law just because you didn't put the gun to their head. But the idea that he's able to manipulate others through different means to do what he wants to do again, is highlighting his intellect as a killer um, and as a criminal mastermind. And I think, though, that the film never really builds any sort of sympathy with any of the characters much. I think they do just enough to connect them all and to give you a sense of who they are without ever being like, oh, I'm going to miss that person because it's just like at that point, your body's three, four, five, and six kind of thing. I did like the sort of blending of the kills, right? I don't think it ever really necessarily... like. That's the fear when you get a bigger cast, right, is that the deaths are become so frequent that they become diluted as a result of the vast number of them or kind of just a lack of creativity. But I felt that a lot of the deaths, for the most part, were fairly memorable, um, whether that be because of the traps themselves or kind of just the more graphic nature of them. Like, obviously, you can see the difference in what they're able to do with these films the more the budget increases. I think the budget of the first film was... 1.2 million or something, and the budget of this one, I believe, was four. Um, and you can see that in the sets. Obviously, there's more sets. There's more practical work uh, applied to all of those kills. And there isn't a single one that is not memorable. Of course, that first opening set piece with that sort of Iron Maiden trap is, te- is again, it kind of is this again, this tetanus gross metal contraption that as soon as it's slammed shut on the guy, like it starts bleeding out of the eye holes and everything, which is disgusting, of course but also a, maybe seemingly insignificant or just a very brief kill. Like when the guy puts his eye up to the peephole through the door and then the gun blows the back of his head off. Like it's such a brief moment, but you can see that where the budget went to this film. You can see like that in the practical work, how gory that moment is and how gruesome it is. And no matter how short it is, it kind of leaves an impression on you. Yeah, we'll get back to that
1: specific scene. Cause like I said, there's that whole opener could have like completely changed the dynamic of the story of those or the victims rather. Um, so would you say that there was like one specific kill that really stood out that you enjoyed more out of all the others or was it, did you just enjoy the fact that all of them had a uniqueness to them that um,
0: kind of help. You know, it wasn't even a kill. It was the scene where Amanda from the first film, like, obviously that's a big deal, right? Is that we have another returning character other than Jigsaw. This woman that is, finds herself in this house full of traps and she is a survivor. And you're like, wait, Jigsaw double dips on victims? Like, what is that about? And so that adds a, uh, an intrigue to like the mystery and the narrative overall of Saw and Jigsaw, which is kind of cool, right? You wouldn't expect that. You would almost expect perhaps one of the characters from one of his, um, maybe, I don't know about victims, but like maybe another detective or something from the department shows up, which you do, you get that, uh, the female detective early on who was in the first film, but she was only in like 30 seconds of the first film. So you would barely, I you wouldn't be, uh, you couldn't blame you for not picking up on that. Cause she's literally in like 60 seconds of the first film. But, um, I think for me, the scene that stands out the most and no matter how, Poorly, some elements of this may have aged. The scene with the needle pit oh my God. makes my fucking skin crawl to a degree that I like, I'm grinding my teeth. I have to look away. Like, it is so uncomfortable. And it, again, it is kind of the brilliance of the traps that I've seen so far in these movies that it taps into this primal fear or a fear that is fairly common that everybody can relate to. Like, whether it's the doll, then you're like, oh, yeah, dolls are creepy. Or like for me, like I hate needles in real life. So to see this woman get thrown into a pit of dirty, crusty fucking needles, talk about tetanus, like all that you can see, it looks like all these needles are used. They're like, they've got like drug residue on them and everything, and then she stands up and they're just like sticking out of her. And then when she realizes like, oh, I have, I think they have two minutes or something to find the key at the bottom of this needle pit to open this door and behind the door, there's supposed to be antidotes. And then she realizes, hey, I've got 30 seconds. And she like starts taking her hands and they might as well be shovels and starts flinging this broken shards of needles everywhere. And more of them are getting stuck in her while she's doing that and freaking out. Like, it is such a skin crawling moment. And that's a way that people describe a lot of sort of horror moments. Like, oh, that was skin crawling. That made my, this scene is literally the sort of epitome of that in that it is so goddamn uncomfortable and disgusting to watch at the same time that it is very upsetting (laughs) and that's putting it like i'm right there with you on that um i i
1: have this isn't a death scene well actually i I don't know if the the cops died in that one but like when they storm the watch steel or whatever the building that um jigsaw is in like his lair his workshop workshop, um his
0: lair jeez uh (laughs) It is, kind of a, it is kind of a lair. He is kind of like the torture equivalent of Batman, right? He's got supposedly like vast wealth and he's just making all this fucked up shit. With that's it.
1: that's a fair point. I appreciate you saying me on that. So there's a scene where the cops storm, uh, you know, Jigsaw's uh, workshop and they're walking through like they open up this walkway that's covered with like steel and barbed wire almost, right? It's like a cage kind of a structure. And they're walking Mm -hmm. through that and I don't know, it's maybe just claustrophobia or whatnot because it's such a small and compact space, but it seemed very off even from the, I remember watching it the first time and being like, that doesn't seem like something that a SWAT team would do just like casually like that. And then you see the, the jigsaw doll on the bike with the that iconic sound laughing and they're pointing mm-hmm. their guns at him and then basically one of the guys takes a step and the step he t- takes a put like push pressure on breaks through and another piece of wood basically like breaks both of his knees after yeah. knee surgery once good on that i that like <laughs> I felt that pain in my knees when i saw that happen and other cops get electrocuted because apparently there was a live wire in there or whatnot. Uh, that was just again, it's it's a very small aspect to the movie, and most people probably wouldn't even kind of think of that when they look at Saw. But it's just nobody is safe. It doesn't matter if you're the police or you're a detective or a SWAT team or a cancer patient. Like nobody is safe in in this franchise. Um, one of the things though that I, I did really appreciate, um kind of moving along towards the end of the story here, did you see or did you have a feeling that there was like he was getting help on from the inside from one of those those victims in there?
0: I think that this is the element, narratively speaking, that really gives this to these two films the legs to spawn into an entire franchise. And I can't speak to how successful the later films are other than Jigsaw, which I don't remember that well, but I think that having the realization that you're not going to be able to buy into this idea that this old cancer riddled man is the only person involved in this mastermind setup of doing all these things. Like he can, he can't get up to get himself a glass of water when he's being interrogated by Donnie Wahlberg. So the idea that we're supposed to believe he filled a pit with 5,000 needles and all this other crazy shit like there's no way that he can do all this and it's a fantastic narrative spin to reveal that he has help like we knew that from the previous film but you would almost assume that's like a fluke right oh yeah he found the one guy he can manipulate into this but then it it feeds into this sort of like ideology that he has that there's a lot of people out there that He can manipulate based on sort of like whether they have past traumas or he can sort of find an element of brokenness in certain people and he can exploit that. And again, like fuels this sort of like criminal mastermind element to him. Um, And I really love this idea that, oh, hey, he had somebody on the inside the whole time. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that pairs really well with the idea that nobody is safe. At the end of the day, who can you trust? Mm -hmm. I remember one point. When I originally saw this film, I was like, is Detective Matthew's son, maybe, the inside man? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, yeah, they have this shitty relationship with one another. You can see that there's a certain brokenness in his kid. Is his kid getting even with his dad or something to that extent? And while that doesn't obviously end up being the case, it still makes you question everybody. Mm -hmm. Because as we see, I think the guy's name is Obi, we see that Obi was manipulated into kidnapping people for Jigsaw. And we don't necessarily need, like, what Jigsaw has on him to do these things. But at the same time, it shows that there are, we live in a society full of broken people. Speaking of, like, his cynical view on life, like, essentially he has an army of people that he could potentially manipulate into doing whatever he wants. And that, I mean, moving forwards, who can you really trust in any of these movies carrying out these, uh, these heinous acts that he wants them to?
1: I mean again as we get later into the franchise there's going to be some twists and turns uh that will test that resilience of yours there on that (laughs) front um but there was one thing that you know i i I mentioned this before uh that kind of on rewatching the movie it it messed me up a little bit just because again you, you literally listen in the first minute, basically, when they're in that, that opening room, um, mm-hmm. when everyone's still alive. And the first thing that, that they basically get told is don't open the door. And at mm-hmm. the end, the trap door that basically um, uh, Daniel and Amanda go through, uh, followed by Xavier right afterwards, is in that same room. So they would have been able to get out essentially if they stayed in that room and all of them would have survived to an extent, right? Um uh, yeah. and then one other small caveat. I don't know if you noticed this. That first guy that got shot, he didn't his picture wasn't in the file that Jigsaw handed um Detective Matthews, and he never got like a huh. or anything. He just literally hmm. was lucky to die because there was no way he was getting out of <laughs>
0: no <laughs> I do like how the whole film is structured around that, right? This idea that if people just shut the fuck up and stop bickering and fighting with one another and work together and really listened, again, listen to what Jigsaw says rather than letting their emotions take over, you would be able to survive. Of course, that would make for a pretty short movie, (laughs) uh, but at the same time, like, I do like that, how there is this irony to the last two films, they're the first two films in the series where it's like, It really is just the the ultimate sort of cynical take on humanity, right? Is that a majority of people allow their emotions to overtake them to the degree that they are not willing to listen to reason or to listen to one another at all. Um, And that's something that I'll be interested to see how much they run with in the the rest of the series moving forwards. Because from what I understand, again, it kind of just becomes more mean and nasty focused in the sense of like, oh, these are unwinnable. And I guess... It seems to me that, like, that is, it's so core to the first two Saw films that there is a chance for salvation, and eventually it gets to the point with a majority of characters where your death is entirely on you once you look past the fact that you've been abducted by a serial killer. But up until a certain point, like, this idea that, oh, if you had, you always had a way out, and yet you got in the way of your own freedom, which I think is interesting. Um, Interesting in the sense that it makes for some pretty, uh, pretty hilarious, like dark humor moments where it's kind of like, again, in the first film, Lou and Elle's character flushing the key to the chains down the toilet in the first five, uh, 30 seconds of the movie. Um, but I think also what I really like is Amanda, right? We learn that Amanda is essentially Jigsaw's protege, like you said, not essentially, she is his protege, this person that he, he quote unquote, saved in the first film, right? This idea that she thinks of him as her basically like a surrogate father. They gave him a second her second shot uh, shot at life and that she was a drug addict and then he essentially gave her a new lease on life much like jigsaw had himself right when he found out he had cancer he tried to kill himself unsuccessfully and then it he decided he's going to dedicate his life to this sort of fucked up pursuit of getting people to appreciate what life they have no matter how long it is Mm -hmm. um and i think that that really shows again it explains how this narrative make how this is feasible to a certain degree, like this idea, okay, it's not just this sick old man running around this city, setting up all these elaborate traps and whatnot, right? He has help, um, which helps in the long term in making this a narrative that lasts for more than two films. At the same time, I think they do a pretty good job of concealing that she is the inside mole, right? I think that it. I was surprised at how well they did, because normally I think when you kind of go back and look at some of these movies, there's some pretty stark tells in terms of like, hey, you should keep an eye on this person. (laughs) Granted, there's one or two moments in the film where she is very aloof and kind of answering questions, but at the same time, like they've all been kidnapped and we think that Jigsaw's double dipping on his victim. So like, I'd be pissed too and out of my mind with anger.
1: I don't, yeah, I I can't really blame anybody uh, for not acting normal in that kind of a situation, especially (laughs) if you've lived through that again, uh, if, if you've lived through that previously. Um, your point, right? Like it's, it's very dependent on the situation. Like if you're that guy in the very opening scene of this movie and you have to cut out your eye basically to you're kind of in a shit spot, you're, you're between a pretty big fucking rock and a hard place there, right?
0: Uh, also with that kill, you were talking about things that, uh, didn't really line up if he had had a key inserted into his eye, wouldn't his eye be fucking useless and probably not feel anything like. The fact that he was so hesitant to cut his own eye out when he's had a key shoved into his eye, wouldn't you think? Like, yeah, you wouldn't feel anything anyways, so why not just fucking cut the eye out? Like,
1: yeah, I mean, <laughs> I imagine uh, some of that—the painkillers—you probably got more often, maybe or something, but yeah, true. not not an ideal <laughs> place to wake up and, and realize that's your situation. Moving though to to the end, right? I mean, we. We basically find, like, uh, Donnie Wahlberg's character somehow takes Jigsaw past an army of SWAT team and (laughs) gets him by himself and into a car, right? Um, And as he gets to, uh, to the location where this entire scenario went down, in contrast to that, you have a different portion of the SWAT team breaking in to another building because they think that's where his son is. So it's mm-hmm. two different scenes going on while um, that female detective, uh, played by Dina Meyer, is sitting in Jigsaw's lair. What did you think when you saw? I think it was Ly- Lyric Bent who plays Rig, uh, Detective Rig, the African American mm. who's the, on the SWAT team when he clicks the stop button, when he realizes it's all pre-recorded. What was the kind yeah. of initial thought on that? Cause was it just a giant, Oh fuck or kind of walk us through that.
0: Yeah. So I completely forgot the twist. Cause again, I haven't seen this movie in probably 10 or 15 years. Um, but it is one of those things where you're just like, you realize and you almost feel stupid afterwards for not realizing like, Oh, there was something else going on here. And you start to pick up on that as soon as he gets to the house. Right. Cause he walks by the bodies. And the, all the bodies look are like rotting and decrepit, right? And so I picked up on that first, and I was just like, ooh, they've been dead for a minute. Like, it's been a minute. And I think that, again, it really shows that the creative team, there isn't like a beat missed in handing over the reins to a new director, right? It still has that signature saw, oh, hey, you really can't trust anything you see, and you should not expect to know how this is going to wrap up, right? And I think that, that was really smart in avoiding, tries to just replicate exactly what the previous film did while still having a twist that I think is not as good, but it's still perfectly fine for the film, right? It's still a solid twist ending that kind of retreads a little bit on familiar ground and kind of like taking us back to the basement where the first film took place and everything like that. Um, and we see kind of Lee Winnell's body, I believe, there and whatnot. And I think that it was cool. It was a cool little nod to the first film without just recreating the entire twist to the end of the first film. Um, so I definitely appreciated that, and um, yeah, I think that it really is again like this nasty cherry on top of this film. And I think the the fact that they've ended the first two films with a twist that is equally enjoyable in terms of being something that you can't see coming to a certain degree. Um, it really just is a nice and nasty sort of a little twist ending there that sets up in a way that maybe it's not the best cliffhanger, but at the same time, it leaves the universe open to tell more stories.
1: Yeah. No, very much so. And
0: uh, I think,
1: again, we touched on this for the actual group that was captured for Donnie Wahlberg's character, Detective Matthews. It's the exact same thing. If he just had listened to Jigsaw he would have been there when the timer ran out and his son, uh, the safe that his son was in would have been there. Right. So like, again, to your point, maybe in the third, uh, the third rendition of saw, this might be a little bit different and maybe you just might be shit out of luck if you find yourself in one of those situations. But, um, (laughs) I think overall this one, two punch of saw one and saw two is, Probably one of the better uh, original and sequel combos in the in the horror universe. Would you agree with that?
0: Uh, for sure, yeah. And I th- well, I think that they complement each other very, very well. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah, I think that the first film is presents an interesting concept that, on a revisit, I don't know it necessarily uh, capitalizes on as well as it can throughout the course of the film. But in terms of you want an example of a sequel that is following the kind of like bigger and better mentality. I mean, Saw Two does that in spades in a lot of ways. And of course, it's not a perfect film, but I think that it really takes the vision of the first film and it expands upon it in bigger and bloodier ways while still being true to the first film. And it doesn't feel like a blatant retreading on what they did previously. I think that's really important. Uh, And I think it's important to sort of separate the idea that it's that a retreading means you can't have a similar structure because this film does have a similar structure, right? It's got the detective narrative and it's got the victim narrative running parallel to one another. It also has a twist, right? And also the protagonist is a cop to a certain degree, uh, or one of the protagonists is, and they are directly affected by this. But at the same time, like all of the traps are really different. There are more of them. None of them feel like they are skimping or not in line with sort of like Saw's signature brutal style of, that it's going for in terms of the kills and whatnot. Um, and again, it has a twist ending that references the original, and yet it is different. And it leaves the film open in a way that the first film did not. I think the first film, it's it ends, and it's pretty, I think it's indicative that, or rather, it's an indication that, hey, Adam is not going to survive. He's going to die in there. Because again, You have that film ending with the credits and you hear him screaming in the background. Whereas this one, Donnie Wahlberg's son is still alive. A majority of the detectives are still alive and he is alive. But of course it ends with her slamming the door. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, Donnie Wahlberg also is like a bigger actor. So the idea that they were going to kind of just like kill him off, I don't know. I didn't buy into that really. Yeah. I think that this ending, is just referential enough to the previous film, and yet it feels like they put so much more effort into world building. I don't know that Donnie Wahlberg is dead, right? I, I have a feeling that his character shows up again, not only because he's obviously a bigger star than, well, I guess he wasn't a bigger star than like Carrie Hill was, was, but at the same time, he is a bigger name than like Lee Winnell was when that film came out just a year previously. So I'm interested to see if he shows up again. I would not be surprised if he does. Um, and I think that also just it's it makes me want more from this universe because they've expanded that, hey, Jigsaw has a whole uh, harem of people, apparently, that work for him. And he's got this new protege. Who knows how many other people he's going to be able to manipulate in the future or is manipulating now to help him. And it just it adds this sort of conspiracy paranoia angle to this narrative that you really can't trust anybody. So going into the next film, I'm going to be even more paranoid of all the characters because I'm going to be like, mm, are one of you a plant again? Are one of you being manipulated into going against the group or helping to further orchestrate this? So, I mean, I'm curious, how did you feel that the ending compared to the previous film?
1: Again, I think it's they're different in the sense that, one, the first ending was perfect for mm. the movie. The second ending was a a really good like iteration of the first movie if that makes sense because essentially at the end of the day whatever happens we get brought back to that same point of if you fail game the game is over for you right and again as Lee Winnell and uh, D- uh, Donnie Wahlberg's character found out um, it's not necessarily pleasant um, we still don't know by the way what happened to Dr. Gordon um, keep in mind uh, right. So there's still other mysteries to that point uh, or I- in this universe uh, kind of out there. But uh, I will say I did take a look at uh, Saw 3. Uh, the director is still Darren Lynn Bozeman. Um, mm-hmm. So at least there's not going to be a, a third director that tries to kind of.
0: I believe he directs two two more films, doesn't he? I'm,
1: Three and maybe four. I, you know, I'm one of the schmucks that when they watch Saw, I do it. For <laughs> or not the director um but, <laughs> but uh i mean i i personally uh i am not familiar with who did the direct uh who directed uh the rest of the saw movies but at least for this third iteration um we don't have to worry about um too many changes on that front obviously cast is a little bit different as as it should be um but it kind of suck if there were eight dead people in there but um but yeah, I I think that Saw three, uh, there's definitely a different story to it as as there is with one and two, um, but we'll see if your kind of your your thought process uh, proves to be correct on like the storyline starting to break down starting after the second and third one.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited, kind of knowing that the same director is going to return for definitely one and potentially two of these movies, and it'll be interesting to see how much of the sort of narrative of the first two films we liked, how much that has to do with the writing or does it have a lot to do with sort of having the right director that knows the sort of style and tone of these movies that makes them so different than the other sort of horror slashers and films out there at the time period when these are coming out. Because again, like I said, I, in terms of, Hey, we we managed to go almost the entire episode without saying torture porn a bunch of times, like we did the first time. But uh, in terms of like these torture porny type of movies, I prefer something like Saw to something like Hostel, right? And I've said that before. And I wonder if Saw, what I've enjoyed so far, is, is that, like, is it Winnell's writing in films one and two? And, uh, of course, James Wan as well. Like, he doesn't have a writing credit for this film, but he apparently was uh, consulted by Winnell in terms of trying to make the director's script that they adapted into Saw to, making it feel more in line with the Saw universe. Mm-hmm. And so... That's one of those elements that I'll be curious to see, right? Because I, again, I don't know if Winnell wrote the script for the third one as well. I know that he's a producer, I believe. But it'll be interesting to see how much the director has in terms of taking that narrative and then seeing if he can sustain that same style and tone. Or if, hey, maybe the writing and the story is gonna take a nosedive when the creative, the original creatives have now left the project in that capacity. So I'll be interested to see how that evolves.
1: Um, but yeah I mean I'm I'm definitely excited to to watch the third one and and see uh, what differences both uh, pro and con we kind of take out of it man.
0: yeah, I think so far, I definitely enjoy the second one the most just again because it is really it should serve as like the blueprint for new franchises and how you expand on the original film because I mean this film I, again it like it's not perfect of course but at the same time, it does take that concept of the first film and expands upon it in a really entertaining way that feels organic, right? It doesn't feel like a new creative has come in and now we're left with this thing that doesn't feel anything like the previous film. Like you would almost feel as if James Wan was again, back in the director's chair in a lot of ways. And again, it'll be interesting to see if that's because of his influence in terms of the writing and the tone of the script, or if it has more to do with the filmmaking. Um, so I'm interested to really see how saw three handles that, but, uh, As always, man, it's a a pleasure talking horror with you. And I can't wait to kind of dive into the series a little bit more next time. Hey, man, I
1: I love uh, being on here and I
0: love the work that you're doing. Uh, I very much appreciate you having me back on that. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next time.